Matthew 22. Matthew 22, we're going to begin reading in verse 1. We're going to read down through verse 14. I encourage you to follow along in your copy of the Bible if you brought it. And if you didn't, follow along in a copy that's there in a seat in front of you. But follow along as we read. Matthew 22, verse number 1. And Jesus answered and spoke to them again by parables and said, The kingdom of heaven is like a certain king who arranged a marriage for his son and sent out his servants to call those who were invited to the wedding, and they were not willing to come. Again, he sent out other servants, saying, Tell those who are invited, See, I have prepared my dinner, my oxen and fatted cattle are killed, and all things are ready. Come to the wedding. But they made light of it, went their ways, one to his own farm, another to his business. And the rest seized his servants, treated them spitefully, and killed them. But when the king heard about it, he was furious, and he sent out his armies, destroyed those murderers, and burned up their city. Then he said to his servants, The wedding is ready. But those who were invited were not worthy. Therefore, go into the highways, and as many as you find, invite to the wedding. So those servants went out into the highways and gathered together all whom they found, both bad and good, and the wedding hall was filled with guests. But when the king came in to see the guests, he saw a man there who did not have on a wedding garment. So he said to him, Friend, how did you come in here without a wedding garment? And he was speechless. Then the king said to the servants, Bind him hand and foot, take him away, and cast him into outer darkness. There will be weeping and gnashing of teeth, for many are called, but few are chosen. Father, we thank you for your word. I pray today as we look at this and maybe look at it in a slightly different way than we would normally look at it, I pray that you'll speak to our hearts. I pray, Father, you'll fill me with your spirit. Forgive me for anything that uh, hinders today. Forgive me for any sin that might lurk that would render me not what I ought to be today. Just help me today, Lord, to be filled with your spirit to teach and preach your word. Help me to say only what I should, but say everything that I should. And I pray that all of us would be filled with your spirit to hear and to receive. I pray we would not just let this go in one ear and out the other. I pray, Father, if this applies to us, uh, we would uh, react. We would respond. We would uh, repent if need be. Uh, praise you if need be. Whatever the response is, Lord, that you lead us to from this, help us to do it. Let there be no distraction. Let there be nothing that uh, hinders our ability to concentrate and just help us, Father, uh, to look just these few moments at your word, for it is your word, and uh, we receive it as such. So we pray it all in Jesus' name. Amen. Some years back, we looked at the parables of Jesus, and frankly, that was one of my favorite studies of all the things that we've ever done since I've been together with you here at this church. I've been struggling lately with my sermon preparation because we're not in a series. I like the structure of a series because it helps me. I know exactly what I'm going to preach next Sunday, even while I'm standing here preaching to you this Sunday. But when I'm not in a series, I have no idea what I'm going to preach next Sunday. I usually don't have any idea what I'm going to preach on Friday when Sue is asking me for the title for the message for the bulletin. I usually don't have any idea what I'm going to preach on Saturday night. I feel like Charles Spurgeon, who used to go into his study at like 9 o'clock at night trying to figure out what he was supposed to preach. It's a horrible feeling. I don't like that. I prefer doing studies. And I think back, we've done so many, so many different studies here that, that have been useful and interesting. I, I wrote down, I think, I think I wrote them all down, Nehemiah, Esther. We looked at the life of David. Jesus' words on the cross, his words after the resurrection. We looked at Mark and John and Acts and Romans and 1 Corinthians, 1 Thessalonians, 1 Timothy, Philippians, and James. I got a lot out of all of those studies. But I honestly think the one that I enjoyed the most was that one on the parables of Jesus. I don't know why it 
it just uh, it really stuck in my mind. And, you know, most of these things are available in book form now, and as I had to take those and, and rework them into, into a book to publish it, it, made it, it, sent, it cemented them even further. When we did the parables of Jesus, we looked at this parable. But we didn't look at it here in Matthew. We looked at the parallel passage in Luke chapter 14. And there's a little bit of a difference between those two. In Luke chapter 14, Luke, uh, Luke describes a feast, but he doesn't mention the fact that it was a wedding feast. Matthew does. And I think that's interesting and important and something that I want to kind of key in on this morning. First of all, let's unpack the parable and make sure we understand just exactly, to the best of our ability, what Jesus was saying. The parable itself is really not that difficult to understand. There was going to be a wedding. It's going to be a wedding. That's the very first thing Jesus mentioned in verse number 2, an impending marriage. There was a king, there was a kingdom, there was a son, and there was soon to be a wedding for a marriage that had been arranged. And so just as we do today, their culture was different and weddings were slightly different, but just as we do today, uh, invitations were sent out, verse number 3. And just as often happens today, there were excuses and there were refusals from some who were invited. We see that in verses 3 through 5. Actually, in this case, it appears that all those invited refused the invitation. And uh, it says they made light of it. They gave a variety of excuses why they could not and would not come to the wedding. Verse 6 says that some even mistreated the messengers. Now, I would hope that that doesn't happen today as we send out wedding invitations and the person delivering the message gets beat up and even killed, as is indicated here. Hopefully that doesn't happen, but here it did. Some mistreated the messengers. So there's this impending marriage. There's, there's invitations. There's excuses. There's refusals. There's even mistreatment of the messengers. But there was something else. There was grave miscalculation on the parts of those who were refusing the invitation. Verse number 7. There was a cost to pay for their excuses. There was a cost to pay for their refusals, and that cost was severe. This was the king they were talking about, and the king was furious, and he exacted judgment upon them. I once read a story about a fellow. I don't remember if I ever shared this here or not before, but his name was Leonard Wood. Sir Leonard Wood once visited the king of France, and the king was so pleased with him and enjoyed his company so much that he invited him. He sent an invitation to him to come and dine with the king the next day. So the next day, Sir Leonard went to the palace and was walking down the hall to try to get to where the king was. And the king met him in the hall. And, and the king says, why, Sir Leonard, I didn't expect to see you today. And Sir Leonard was astonished, of course, because he thought he'd been invited. He said, didn't the king invite me to dinner? And the king said, well, yes, I did, but you never answered my invitation. And Sir Leonard Wood said, a king's invitation is never to be answered, but to be obeyed. And that's what these folks should have thought of. When the king sent an invitation, there was a grave miscalculation on their part when they refused it. Soon there were more invitations, verses 8 through 10. The wedding did take place, verses 10 and 11. All was good. The wedding hall was filled with guests. There was a little problem toward the end. There was somebody who didn't belong there, verses 11 through 14. We'll save that for another time. The king took care of that very quickly. But that's basically the parable. That's basically what Jesus was saying. There was going to be a wedding. Invitations went out. Refusals and excuses flowed. The messengers were mistreated by those invited, and the king exacted a heavy price upon their heads for that mistreatment. Then he invited others. 
and went ahead and had the wind. So that's a parable. What's Jesus mean by that? What's the interpretation of all that? Well, it's important to remember that parables usually have pretty much a singular interpretation, at least a singular primary interpretation. We might be able to apply the lessons of the parable in a variety of ways, and we're going to do that in just a moment. But we dare not make that kind of an application until we first understand what Jesus said and what Jesus meant. What is the actual interpretation? So what was he saying here? What was his primary meaning in this parable? What truth was he illustrating by this story of this wedding feast? Well, the primary interpretation involves Israel. Israel. Jesus spoke these words during Passion Week, the week leading up to the cross. And the parables that were spoken during that week, and there were several, are all all judgmental in nature. Judgment that was looming for Israel as they rejected their Messiah. In order to get that context, we can just look back at the previous chapter and look at the things that were taking place in chapter 21. I mean, just flip back there and just kind of glance down through some of the things. Maybe look at the headings in your Bible there and see what was happening there in in, in chapter 21. In the very first 11 verses of chapter 21, we had the triumphal entry. Jesus had an astonishing fulfillment of prophecy ridden into Jerusalem atop a donkey, declaring himself to be the Messiah. We talk about this at Easter often. We certainly talk about it on Palm Sunday. Uh, not very long ago, back in November, I believe it was, our missionary to the Ivory Coast, Bob Mack, was here, and he preached a tremendous message about this very thing. And he talked about the fact that Daniel's prophecy pretty much predicted to the exact day when this would happen. And so here's Jesus riding in to Jerusalem, fulfilling this prophecy. Anyone who knew the Bible could not doubt that that's what he was doing and saying. He was declaring himself to be the king in fulfillment of that prophecy. And so then in verses 12 through 17 of chapter 21, we have the cleansing of the temple, which was another astonishing thing. Here is Jesus walking into the temple and exercising authority over God's house. And so he was once again declaring himself to be the Messiah, declaring himself to be their king. Verses 18 through 21, we have the lesson of the withered fig tree. The time that Jesus cursed the fig tree and then it withered away. And we've talked about that in the past. That, that, that cursing and that subsequent withering away was, was meant to be a warning to Israel. It was meant to be a sign to Israel. It was a direct statement concerning the judgment that awaited them for their unfruitfulness, their rebellion against God, and their rejection of their king. In verses 23 through 27 of chapter 21, we see continuing conflicts with the Jewish leaders. These men, these scribes and Pharisees and chief priests and elders and, and all of them, in spite of all that they had seen, these men who should have known more than anybody else on the earth the reality of what Jesus was accomplishing that week, uh, they should have known that it was an amazing fulfillment of Scripture. These men still rejected, argued, and fought against him and sought to do away with him. And so we have that. And then in verses 28 through 44 of that previous chapter, we had two more parables. Two more parables, both of which warned of God's impending judgment on Israel for rejecting the Messiah. The first was the parable of the two sons. And the second was the parable of the wicked vine dressers. And, 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 and if, if it's possible for us to say to ourselves, well, 
maybe we're not interpreting this right. We need to look at what the Jewish leaders recognized that Jesus was saying, because they had no trouble interpreting it at all. They knew exactly what he meant. Look at verse number 45 of chapter 21, and you'll see that they knew exactly what he was saying. When the chief priests and Pharisees heard his parables, they perceived that he was speaking of them. They knew exactly what those parables meant. They were a pronouncement of judgment upon them. And so then we come to chapter 22, and we have this, this, this next parable, this parable of the wedding feast. And within that context, we see it has a very similar interpretation. Basically, Jesus was saying, you, Israel, were invited to the marriage. Your king has walked among you for three years now, preaching the gospel of the kingdom, backing up his preaching with miracle after miracle after miracle. He has healed the sick and mended the lame and enlightened the blind. He's opened deaf ears, loosed the tongues of the dumb. He has cast out demons. He has turned water into wine. He has fed thousands from nothing. He has demonstrated his power over every aspect of creation, even to the point of, of, of commanding the wind and the waves that obeyed him. He has even raised the dead. And he has fulfilled every prophecy concerning the Messiah. But you made excuses. And you refused. And you mistreated, and you continue to mistreat those who invited you. And you have gravely miscalculated and faced the wrath of the king. Others will be invited to take your place. And, of course, I can hear you. Don't think I can't hear you. I know what some of you are thinking right now. Okay, that's just wonderful. Ho-hum. A parable about Israel. What does it have to do with me? Well, one thing it has to do with you is since Israel did reject the Messiah, the gospel went to the Gentiles. How many of you in this room this morning are Gentiles? Let me, let me help you. I think all of you are. I think all of you are. God's not done with Israel. We know that that's the subject of another message. But in the time, he sent out invitations to another group. And that's you and I. And so one reason that this is important is because we, we see in it our opportunity now the gospel came to us, and we can be saved because of it. So that's one clear way this parable affects you. But I, I want to suggest another. And now, as I suggest this other, you may think that I've kind of gone a little bit too far astray. I don't know. Because this is a little bit of a far-fetched application from this parable. But I think it's there. I want to give you a thought about a wedding. This past Friday, I was sitting in my office very glumly trying to figure out what to preach. I had no message. couldn't figure it out. Veronica, our cleaning lady, walked into my office, and she uh, came in to empty my trash, as she does on Friday mornings, and she said the same thing she always says. Hi, Pastor, how are you? Got any trash? So she goes over. I said, I'm fine, Veronica, except for one small little problem. I can't think of anything to preach for Sunday. You got any ideas? And she thought that was hilarious and laughed at me and walked out of the room to take my trash a few seconds later, she came running back into the room with this excited look on her face. And she said, I do have an idea. And I said, what's that? She said, I got it on Dr. Phil just this past week. <laughs> and, of course, that's not a place that I would usually go to look for sermon material. But I listened to what she had to say. And she told me about an episode that she had watched where a particular woman had gone on the Dr. Phil show to ask him if he, if he would sanction her leaving her husband in this particular situation. And I'm, I don't know all the details. She said that the, the, the husband was an invalid or something, and she was trying to figure out if it was right for her to leave her husband. 
She said she had even gone so far as she was having an affair and she had moved her lover into the house with her invalid husband. And so Veronica asked me, what do you think about that? You preach something about that? Well, we discussed marriage a little bit, and I explained some things from Scripture, but, but it honestly did get me thinking about marriage. And I thought, wow, we haven't preached on that in a while. Maybe we ought to talk about that a little bit. And so I did a little bit of reading in my Bible about marriage, and believe it or not, this came up, because we'll look at that first, the first verse Jesus said there, the kingdom of heaven is like a certain king who arranged a marriage for his son. And so I want to talk about it a little bit, just this whole idea of marriage. Because there's so much confusion about it today. There's so much misinformation about marriage. Now, maybe some of that confusion and misinformation has always existed. I don't know. But as our culture has grown more and more distant from God, and as Christians in our churches have grown more and more biblically illiterate, which is a sad case in our world today, I think we see that this whole idea of confusion about what God had in mind for marriage grows worse and worse. I mean, think about some of the wrong views that exist about marriage today. Here's one. Some people believe that marriage is simply a legal construct. It's just simply something that government has imposed upon us. It's a legal thing. Uh, and, of course, this part that's partially true. There is a legal aspect to it. How long have we been married now? Four years. See, I knew that. About four years ago, Kathy and I got married, and uh, we had to go traipsing down to the uh, courthouse. And we had to pay our little fee, and we had to get our little license. And then when we came and we were married here in front of some of you folks, we had to give Phil Ross that thing, and he had to sign it, and he had to send it back off so it could be properly recorded in the courthouse. I mean, there is a legal aspect to this. Every time I've ever done a marriage, I'm always somewhat struck by the grave warnings that are on that document to the pastor. Because, it's, you know, it warns you on there, if you don't send this back in a timely fashion, there's a fine, and we're coming after you. So there is an aspect of marriage that is legal, at least in our society. But there's so much more to it than that. There's so much more to it than that. Here's another wrong view of marriage. Marriage is optional. It's optional. Here's a sad Sad reality today that many people just simply forego it altogether in our society. Living together and cohabiting outside of a recognized marriage is not, is not viewed as unusual anymore. <laughs> it's actually pretty much proved in our society. And I think, sadly, even in our churches today, we're seeing more and more and more of that. There seems to be no concern about living together outside of marriage. Johnny Erickson Tata one time said, Gradually, though no one remembers exactly how it happened, the unthinkable becomes tolerable, and then acceptable, and then legal, and then applaudable. And that's where we are today in a lot of these kinds of things. And that's where we are a lot in even the church related to marriage. Uh, it's not only tolerable, it's acceptable. It's not only acceptable, it's legal. It's not only legal, it's actually applaudable to many. And, of course, nothing could be further from the truth according to the Bible. So one wrong view is that it's simply a legal construct. One, view, one wrong view is that it's optional. Here's a third wrong view about marriage, and that is this. Marriage depends on feelings. As long as it feels good, well, the marriage continues. When it no longer feels good, well, 
It ends. So long as those fuzzy, romantic, warm feelings that we had when we were dating last, the marriage is a go. But when they fade, well, it's time for that marriage to end. So long as the passion stays, so long as the joy remains, so long as you still feel in love with each other. But again, nothing could be further from the truth of Scripture. That's just simply a wrong view. That's not the way Bible, the Bible describes marriage at all. One last wrong view, and then we'll look at some right, right views. One last wrong view is this marriage depends on convenience. I didn't sign up for this. This is not the way it's supposed to be. She was not like this before I married her. I see a side of him now that was not there before. So many times, I was not pointing at you. So many times, so many times people will describe the reason they think their marriage is on the rocks, no longer salvageable, is is in terms like that. Things change, health wanes, financial woes come, personality traits long hidden surface. We get fat. We get wrinkles. We don't feel good. And we take it out on each other. You name it. They're just, they're just, there's a gazillion reasons. There's a gazillion examples of this. But they all boil down to this belief that marriage depends on convenience. As long as it's convenient for us, we'll keep it going. But when that ceases, yeah, we kick it to the curb. There might be other wrong views of marriage that you can think of. But I think those are pretty all-encompassing. I think just about everything you can think of probably could be shoehorned in somewhere to those wrong views of marriage. But what does the Bible say? What does the Bible teach about marriage? What are the right views? Well, here's one. Marriage transcends culture and law. Marriage is an institution of God. In the very beginning, before there were laws... Regarding marriage, before any kind of culture had arisen around marriage, before there were courts or magistrates or marriage license or any of that, there was this from God. Genesis chapter 2 and verse 24, Therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. We don't marry because it's the law of the land. We don't marry because it's something that's culturally accepted to do. We marry because God has ordained it first ordained it when there were only two people on the earth and when there weren't 10,000 laws about it on the books. There weren't even ten commandments written in stone. There was one law. Don't eat of that tree. That was it. Way back then, at the very beginning, God ordained it, that they would become one single, inviolable union, that they would become one flesh, that they would cleave to one another. And so throughout Scripture, we find marriage elevated and uplifted in God's eyes, and we find adultery and living together outside of marriage condemned. Always. Always. Hebrews chapter 13, verse 4, Marriage is honorable among all, and the bed undefiled, but fornicators and adulterers God will judge. So marriage is not simply a legal construct. It's not simply a cultural norm. It is an institution ordained by God from the very beginning of creation. That's one thing the Bible says about it. Here's another one. Turn with me to Ephesians chapter 5, if you would. Ephesians chapter 5. And as you're turning there, I'll, I'll tell you this second thing. Marriage is a commitment and a matter of the will. 
It's a matter of the will. I think one of the most important passages in the Bible related to marriage is this passage we're going to read here in Ephesians chapter 5. Let's, let's start reading in verse number 22 and just read a few verses here. Wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is head of the wife, as also Christ is head of the church, and he is the Savior of the body. Therefore, just as the church is subject to Christ, so let the wives be to their own husbands in everything. Husbands, love your wives, just as Christ also loved the church and gave himself for her, that he might sanctify and cleanse her with the washing of water by the word, that he might present her to himself a glorious church, not having spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that she should be holy and without blemish. So husbands ought to love their own wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. For no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it just as the Lord does the church. For we are members of his body, of his flesh, of his bones. For this reason, a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This is a great mystery. But I speak concerning Christ and the church. Nevertheless, let each one of you in particular so love his own wife as himself, and let the wife see that she respects her husband. There are many things we could discuss from this chapter, but I want you to notice one thing particular. I'm just going to cherry pick something out of here. I want you to notice it. I want you to notice the instruction to husbands. In verse number 25, husbands, love your wives. Verse number 28, husbands ought to love their own wives. Verse number 33, nevertheless, let each one of you in particular so love his own wife. Isn't it amazing? based upon what we think we know about love, that God would command it to us. How is that possible? How is it possible? I mean, I can hear you. Wait a minute. How is it possible? How can one be commanded to feel something? How can one be commanded to have an emotion? It just doesn't seem fair, does it, that God would mandate a feeling? But he tells us here, it's a command. Husbands, love your wives. And you see, the picture that most people have hanging in the art gallery of their mind of love is not the biblical picture at all. Not at all. We think of love as simply a feeling, a, a passion, a, a warm and fuzzy, this, this wonderful longing for another person, this I can't live without her uh, thought process. We use phrases like in love. We use phrases like falling in love to describe what we think marital love really is. These phrases convey the idea that it's just something that happens, that we're victims of it, that we have no control. It's just this feeling that washes over us, that sweeps us off our feet, and we fall in love. Falling, by the way, by its very definition, is, is an occurrence that is completely out of our control. And that's what we think of when we think of love interesting to me that uh, Deanna mentioned the bowling party this morning because I was going to mention something about last year's bowling party. And so I'll do that right now. Last year, we had a bowling party at Kent Lane's. I'm a stinky bowler. I'm not any good at it, just like I'm not good at any, just about any other athletic endeavor. But I enjoy it anyway. Kathy enjoys it, so we go. I went and I rented my shoes at the, uh, at the counter and I went and laced them up and I picked up my alley ball there and when my time came and my name was called, I went up there to the line and I went up to release the ball. And when I released the ball, I fell flat on my face. Right straight down the alley. I had oil all over me. And, of course, my ego was horrendously bruised because my entire church was laughing at me at the time. 
but also because I had no control. It was a horrible feeling. It was just a terrible feeling as I felt myself going, following the ball right down. I got back to the seat and I looked, and the nice little shiny leather sole that you're supposed to have on your shoes was not there on the shoes that they gave me. There was a big hole there with a big piece of rubber sticking out, and of course when I planted that foot, down I went. The picture we have of falling in love gives the impression that it's something outside of our control. And the whole idea of being in love conveys the thought that if we can fall into it, we can also fall out of it. How many times have you heard somebody say, I, I just not in love with them anymore? But here's the biblical truth, and the biblical truth contradicts all of that. Love in the Bible is a feeling, yes. It certainly is part of it. But it is also, and perhaps even more so, a matter of the will. It is a choice. And that is why. God commands husbands to love their wives because it is just that. Something they can choose to do. Something they can not be victims of or helpless around. It is a matter of the will. So, one last thing. We said it transcends culture and law. It's an institution of God. We said it's a commitment and it's a matter of the will. The third right view, I think, of marriage. And this is key is it is an illustration of our relationship with Jesus Christ. Did you see that passage? We just just read a whole lot of that in Ephesians chapter 5. Husbands, love your wives just as Christ also loved the church and gave himself for her, that he might sanctify and cleanse her with the washing of water by the word, that he might present her to himself a glorious church, not having spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that she should be holy without blemish. No one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it just as the Lord does the church. For we are members of his body, of his flesh, and of his bones. This is a great mystery, but I speak concerning Christ and the church. The church is referred to throughout the New Testament as the bride of Christ. Jesus used that imagery, not only in the parable we're looking at today, but other times as well. Matthew chapter 9, Jesus said to them, Can the friends of the bridegroom mourn as long as the bridegroom is with them? But the days will come when the bridegroom will be taken away from them, and then they will fast. Then the kingdom of heaven shall be likened to ten virgins who took their lamps and went out to meet the bridegroom. And at midnight a cry was heard, Behold, the bridegroom is coming. Go out to meet him. Matthew 25. John the Baptist used similar language when he pointed out Jesus and talked about Jesus. He said, He who has the bride is the bridegroom. But the friend of the bridegroom who stands and hears him rejoices greatly because of the bridegroom's voice. Therefore, this joy of mine is fulfilled. John chapter 3. The idea that the church is the bride of Christ is seen throughout the book of Revelation. Several times. Let us be glad and rejoice and give him glory for the marriage of the Lamb has come and his wife has made herself ready. Then I, John, saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. Paul used this imagery several times to describe the relationship of the church to Christ. He said in Romans chapter 7, Therefore, my brethren, you also have become dead to the law through the body of Christ, that you may be married to another, to him who was raised from the dead that we should bear fruit to God. 2 Corinthians 11, 2, I am jealous for you with godly jealousy, for I have betrothed you to one husband, that I may present you as a chaste virgin to Christ. We're commanded to love. And we're commanded to love because our relationship with our spouse is to be an image, a picture, an illustration of the relationship between Christ and the church. Husbands, How you relate to, how you talk to, how you 
behave toward, how you treat your wife, is meant to be an illustration of how Christ relates to us who are saved. Your love to her is to be an example of his love for us. Think about that. He does not love us because it's some legal construct. He does not love us because it's cultural. He loves us with an everlasting love. And marriage is supposed to be a picture of that. And so even though I come to this parable of the wedding feast, and it's really not about a marriage, it's really about Israel, I still think that verse just jumped out at me, the kingdom of heaven is like a certain king who arranged a marriage for his son. Oh, and by the way, ladies, lest you think you're getting off the hook on this one, let me point out to you that the same responsibility the husband has to love you, the same command that he is given to love you, you have also. Maybe not in that passage. How about this one? Let's take a look at Titus chapter 2. But as for you, speak the things which are proper for sound doctrine, that the older men be sober, reverent, tempered, sound in faith, in love, in patience. The older women, likewise, that they be reverent in behavior, not slanderers, not given to much wine, teachers of good things, that they admonish the young women to love their husbands, to love their children, to be discreet, chaste, homemakers, good, obedient to their own husbands, that the word of God may not be blasphemed. The same command. The husband has to love the wife. You have to love your husband. It's a command. So what do we do about all this? What action items could we take away from this? How might we apply it to our own specific situations, our own marriages, our own homes, our own lives? Let me just mention a couple. If you're living together outside of marriage, stop it. Get married. Or move out. It's really that simple. There is no other biblical correct answer to that. I'll never forget years ago when I had first come to this church, there was a young man who was living together with his, with his girlfriend outside of marriage. And he came to me one day and he asked me about that. What do you think about that? I told him what I thought about that. told him what the Bible says. He left very pensive, very pensive and sullen and downtrodden, kind of like the rich young ruler who went away sad. He came up to me a few weeks later said he had moved out. I said, really? He said, and I'll never forget him saying this. He said, I just decided that there's never a right time to do the wrong thing. Praise God. And you know, he's married to her today, and they're doing right today, and everything's just fine today. So if you're living together outside of marriage, you really need to address that. If you want to be right with God about it, you need to address it. Number two, if you're contemplating marriage, and I don't know if there's anybody in here, some of the young folks may be thinking, I don't know, I don't know where people are, but you need to stop and think about what the command to love really means. If you're not willing to stick it out when the warm, fuzzy stuff ends, you're not ready. Don't do it. You need to walk away. When that shimmering, glorious, all-surrounding, all-enveloping feeling you have right now wanes, if you're not willing to stick it out, then don't do it. There is a reason that marriage vows are unconditional. This is one of the reasons why I don't like people to write their own vows. Because people who like, like to write their own vows usually want to say things like, oh, I'll love you forever and ever. I just love you so. Whereas the real marriage vows, the good marriage vows say, for richer, for poorer. In sickness and in health. No matter what comes along. What they're basically saying is, I vow that I will love you. It's a matter of my will. No matter what comes along. If you're not willing to do that, and if you can't really say that, then you really need to consider whether or not you're ready for marriage. And then here's a third one, and then this one I'm done. 
If you're struggling with a marriage, if you're disappointed in marriage, if you're wanting more from your marriage, if you're in any way dissatisfied with your marriage, if you look at your spouse and think to yourself, I don't care what you say, preacher, I don't love him. I don't love her the way I used to. Then you need to repent. That's really the only solution that I can see in Scripture. You need to repent. God's command is to love them. There is no exception to that. He does not give us commands that we cannot keep. And so whatever reason or excuse there might be there for trying to wiggle out of obedience doesn't hold water. You need to repent. And you need to ask God to help you love your spouse. Need to be praying hard that our marriage would be the picture of the relationship between Christ and His church that He designed it to be. Father God, we're thankful for Your Word. I, I pray that this has been helpful. It's awful quiet in here, Lord. I, I don't know how to read how people are responding to this, and so I just give it to You. And I pray, Father, that, uh, uh, that all would take it as, as Your Word. Uh, this is what the Bible says, and uh, we pray that we'd all just be uh, open to it. I know that these are hard issues. I know that sometimes people are just hurting. I know that sometimes people are in pain, that relationships are not what they thought they would be, and they struggle. I know that. And so I pray today, Lord, that no one is, is, is hurt or offended in that way, but that they'll recognize that, uh, Lord, you don't give us commands we can't keep, and you'll help us. I pray if there's anybody here who's saying, I just don't know how I can do that, I pray they'd think about the man in, in Mark chapter 9 who, when Jesus said, you know, anything's possible if you but believe. And he said, Lord, I believe. Help my unbelief. Lord, some of us here today just need to say, Lord, I loved once. I, I want to love still. Help me to love. Some of us need to say, I, I, I at one time wanted my marriage to be a picture of what I have with you, Christ, but it hasn't been, and I want it to be Help me. Lord, whatever the needs might be. This has been a whole message about marriage, and so the invitation is centered around that. But, Lord, whatever the needs might be, if there are those here today who just need to come and pray about any of these things, I pray they know there's nobody going to judge them, look down on them. People will just be praying right along with them. And so I pray. Lord, we've seen so much attack from Satan in our own church and in our world on marriage. Help us, Lord, to have the marriages we ought to have. We pray it in Jesus' name.